0: Welcome to the Littoral Zone Podcast. I'm your host, Phil Rowley. The Littoral Zone or Shoal Area of a Lake is the place where the majority of the action takes place. My podcast is intended to do the same, put you where the action is to help you improve your stillwater fly fishing. On each broadcast, I, along with guests from all over the world, will be providing you with information, tips and tricks, flies, presentation techniques, along with a few different lakes for you to explore. I hope you enjoy today's podcast. Please feel free to email me with your Stillwater-related fly fishing questions and comments. I do my best to answer as many as we can prior to each episode, just before the main content. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoy today's show.
1: This is Dave, your Wet Fly Swing podcast host, Phil Roy, back for another huge episode of The Littoral Zone today. This is our chance to break down Stillwater fishing from one of the best, so you have the tools you need for success this season. Today's episode is sponsored by Chota Outdoor, legendary comfort and equipment you can trust. Chota insists on the finest materials and craftsmanship. You can assure you have the highest standards of quality. You'll feel in control of the elements in your Chota gear. Every product is solidly backed with a no-nonsense warranty against defects. Head over to wetflyswing.com slash Chota right now. That's Chota, C-H-O-T-A, to support this podcast and the Chota Outdoor family right now. Established in 1928, Deddy Flies is the oldest family run fly shop in the world, now in their 94th year. Deddy's mission has always been to supply the fly fishing community with the finest products and services. Every fly they sell is either tied in house or by a handful of select domestic tires. Please head over to slash Deddy to grab your in house flies today. That's slash Deddy. D E T T E. To support this podcast and the oldest fly shop in the world.
0: Hello, everyone. Thanks for spending time with me today and joining me on the Littoral Zone Podcast. Today, we're covering part two of our in depth discussion on making sense of stillwater fly lines. But before we do, I want to take this time to answer a great question I received from Jerry regarding UV and its influence on materials and flies itself. Jerry was asking a question about tying fabs and blobs, two great attractor patterns. Um, and do the UV materials make a big difference? He's fishing in Arkansas primarily for crappy and seems to notice that the UV increases uh, his takes twofold. He wondered if my experiences were the same. Well, I'm a big believer in UV as far as fluorescence. I love to have fluorescent materials either completely or partially involved with the fly. A lot of hot spots, hot beads, those would be examples of partial involvement. And complete involvement where the fly is made primarily of these UV materials would be your still water attractors. Your flies, as Jerry had mentioned, your fabs, blobs, apps, worms, what's-its ecstasy worms the whole list we'll have to have an episode one day on attractor techniques in the near future but i'm a big believer in those in certain conditions i love fishing patterns with uv in them on overcast days where the water is clouded and particularly in deep water where those fluorescent materials are going to pick up any available light and reflect it back and draw fish in so these flies work well on their own and work especially well when you're fishing a team of flies, multiple flies, where you can use that vibrant UV fluorescence to attract fish into your flies. Perhaps they'll eat the attractor, or more often than not, they come in for a look, see that attractor, and then look downstream or down leader from there, or up leader, depending on where you've got that UV fly positioned and eat something more natural. So they're a real part of my Stillwater game, and I encourage you to add them to yours. And that's just a great question, Jerry, and one I get asked a lot.
1: Okay, let's jump into this one and let Phil do his best mic drop as we head out onto the water. If you have questions anytime, you can reach out to Phil or me. You can head over to wetflyswing.com or check in with Phil.
0: All right, it's part two of our uh, in-depth discussion of making sense of still water fly lines. Now, if you listen to part one, which I hope you did, it sort of explained where we were going with this journey through Stillwater lines. The goals were to uh, give you an understanding of why you'd need multiple lines to be successful on lakes. I think most people, when they come from a river and stream environment, they're used to probably having just a floating line and that allows them to fish a variety of different techniques you can nymph with it using indicators you can fish dries and emergers. you can fish streamers but when you get to lakes you see there's a lot of line options and it can be a little overwhelming i think over the course of of uh, these two uh, episodes you'll see i'll have around 20 fly lines with me on any given day when i'm on the water in my kit bag and i'm just trying to explain why you need all those lines and what all their purposes are when it comes to to um lakes itself seasoned fly fishers carry a lot of fly lines with them i think i mentioned in the first episode about uh, competition anglers uh, and the demands at competition have a lot of options with them when they're on the water and that could be in excess of 30 different fly lines perhaps even 50 fly lines which you know some of them are a blend of, of different line functions others are different line types and some are just nietzsche lines that are or were available that uh, had a specific application And you always wanted to have one of those lines on you in case you ran into a scenario for using them. So a bit like the only the paranoid survive, I think I joked about. So, and there's many options, of course, and this gets overwhelming and and can be a little daunting both on which lines to buy. And of course, the good old pocketbook, it can add up pretty quick sometimes. So you want to make sure that when you get a fly line, you make the best choice you can. So you're getting value for your investment. And you know what the line types are, when to use them and how to use them. And that's what we talked about in great detail as well. We talked about how fly lines were made, the outer coating, the cores, the different cores out there. We have, you know, uh, multi-filament Dacron type cores. We have monofilament cores, which we'll get into a little bit deeper detail today in the sinking line section. And we have low stretch cores. And I'm a big fan of low stretch cores, as I mentioned in that first episode, um, because, They offer so many advantages. First of all, increased sensitivity. I get a little better bite detection. I I don't miss as many or don't miss uh, subtle strikes. I can react to them quicker. So I set the hook set and that hook set, um, that strike I I impart into my presentation uh, is transmitted efficiently down there and sets the hook. Some may argue a low stretch line. And these are lines that stretch only minimally about 6%. Your average line stretches up to 30%, which is when you compare, it seems like a bit of a bungee cord. Um, so when it comes to hook set, um, that can impede the ability of the hook to get in there because your strike is absorbed. You don't get that with a low stretch line, but some, again, might uh, criticize that you can break fish off, but that's where your fly rod comes in to play. It has a role to play as well um, as it absorbs uh, some of that uh, hook set you put in. You'll develop a touch for it. Better casting because when you do those rod stops um, to, you know, as part of the casting stroke, um, you're not going to lose any casting energy due to the elasticity of line. The low stretch lines help build up line speed, which allows you to cast greater distances, better manage uh, environmental conditions such as wind. And of course, when you're fighting fish, the actions we use to defeat the fish are transmitted much more efficiently. You defeat the fish faster in a catch and release environment. That's always good, but you can get that fish in quickly, get it rested, get it recovered, and let it get on its way. Um, and then we went after that, we went in to um, the fourth segment of lines that I have in my kit bag. And these are floating lines and uh, midge tips. And we spend a bit of time talking about different line types, and different line um, requirements for floating lines. Of course, most people think of a floating line about fishing dries and emergers. And we don't get to do that as much as our river and stream colleagues do. But when we do have that opportunity, we want to be prepared for it. So we want to have a line for that. So that's a line that would feature a a long front taper um, that dissipates casting energy, facilitates a gentle landing of the line and leader and fly on the surface so you don't spook fish. But these lines also have a role to play subsurface as well when you're fishing calm, clear conditions, shallow. Um, where a more aggressive uh, floating line, like one you'd use for indicators, it has an aggressive front taper that may be, by aggressive I mean short Only has about three feet of front taper. This keeps the mass up near the end of the line, which is going to help turnover indicators and long leaders. Not necessarily something you want in the case of presenting flies to cruising fish with small nymphs and wet flies and things like that, where... Um, that uh, aggressive front taper may cause the line to land a little more aggressively and potentially spook the fish. And then we got into sink tips, if you will. And I don't really like using traditional sink tips on lakes. I prefer to use what's called a midge tip or an emerger tip line or a clear tip line. These are lines with integrated, subtle sink tips on them. By integrated, they're all part of the same line. There's no loop-to-loop connections, for example. Um, So these are lines that typically feature a three- or a six-foot intermediate tip. A clear intermediate tip is the most common one. The midge tip, as many people know it as. They also now make a hover tip that sinks at a paltry one inch per second. We'll talk about more about hover lines in a little bit in the sinking line section. Um, but uh, And come, of course, come in different lengths. Three-foot lengths, six-foot lengths. Some manufacturers up to 12-foot lengths. So you can see how these lines can quickly pile up. And by the end of session one, I had explained why I have seven of these types of lines in my box. I've got... Um, my box my still water kit bag rather i've got two floating lines suited for casting long leaders and indicators these are again these lines featuring a short front taper then i've got your traditional dry fly line with a long front taper this might have a front taper of about 10 feet again to facilitate that gentle delicate landing of the line leader and fly and fly line on the water and then the midge tips i've got a three foot midge tip a six foot midge tip in both clear Sorry, they're all um, in clear and hover. So the clear tip sinks at one and a half inches per second. My hover tip sinks at a half inch per second. So that's four different midge tips and three floating lines added up to seven. And we're going to show you in sinking lines today how we're going to add to that. But we're also going to summarize everything and give you sort of the critical path of the three primary lines. I would consider always being on the water with whenever you visit a lake, whether that's in your backyard, in the next state or province, or in another country. Uh, and I encourage you to listen to part one if you haven't already, because we go into the, a lot more detail than I just provided there, here. But let's get into sinking lines, because that's what today's episode is all about. So for most people fishing lakes, they probably think sinking lines, well, that makes sense, doesn't it? You know, uh, we're dealing with water depth, you know, considerably more than if you think about rivers and streams for the most part. We um, you know where we're fishing depths 5, 10, 15, 20 feet or greater. It makes sense to use a sinking line because, the majority of trout in productive lakes feed subsurface. They feed on the nymphs, the larvae, the pupa. They feed on leeches and scuds and baitfish and other things. All these things live beneath the surface, so it makes sense to use a sinking line to get our flies down there where the fish are feeding. And, of course, if you're fishing, uh, you need to fish deep, the sinking line helps you get that fly deep and keep it there. You can target fish and trout in deeper water, and I'm talking 15, 20, 25, 30 I even use uh, sort of a specialized technique with fast sinking lines where I'm targeting lake trout in water 50 feet or greater and can be successful doing it if the conditions are right. The horizontal retrieve path that sinking lines provide mimics the way many of the natural food sources trout feed upon move. So leeches, if you think about it, move horizontally. Minnows swim horizontally. Scuds move horizontally. Damselfly nymphs about the only food sources that move vertically or on an angle towards the surface are emerging nymphs and pupa, coronamids, caddis pupa, mayfly nymphs, those kind of things. So for the most part, the sinking line gives you that horizontal retrieve path necessary for success. Lakes can be windy, and wind not only is a challenge for many of us to cast against or cast with and deal with, but it also impacts your presentation as well. That surface chop, if you're using a floating line presentation with either a floating line or a midge tip of some sort, that surface chop can uh, negatively impact your presentation. And also because we tend to use longer leaders on those type of line setups when you're casting those leader setups in windy conditions. Um, If we overcompensate for the wind, we can create improper casting technique, tailing loops, wind knots, frustration, tangled leaders, knotted flies, you name it. Not fun when you're fishing sinking lines, our leaders are shorter generally. And also that line gets under the surface chop, allowing you to stay in better control of your presentation and have off you better sensation um, as far as being able to feel the take. And of course, depending on the line type you use, its uh, design, its sink rate, and the time you let it sink, you have the ability to work a variety of depths from top to bottom and cover the entire water column, which is really important when you're searching for fish particularly in deep water because they are not always near the bottom either there's no food there or environmental conditions um, don't there's not enough oxygen down really deep for them to get there depending on the species um, of trout you're, you're feeding of course lake trout can feed deeper but most of our other trout species of course lake trout or char feed a lot shallower so we they can be suspended you could be fishing 40 feet of water and those fish could be 15 feet down 20 feet down And a sinking line allows you to work down through to those areas and find those fish. So one of the things, though, before we get further into sinking lines, is um, sometimes when people think about sinking lines and sink rate, they get the density of the line, the sink rate of the line, the mass of the line mixed up with grains. And sometimes if you're you're not careful and the way sometimes sinking lines are portrayed, grain weight or um, the grain count, if you will, uh, tends to get confusing because people think sometimes that lines with a higher grain count sink faster than lines with a lesser grain count, and that's not the case. Grains are a unit of measure, um, about one seven thousandth of a pound, but they're typically measured in grams, and they're used to help determine line weight so you match the fly line to the correct weight of rod. So how they do this is the American Fly Tackle Manufacturers Association, AFTMA set a standard that uh, the grains measured over the first 30 feet of a fly line are used to determine the line weight. So whether that's a sinking line, an intermediate line, or a floating line, they all have a specific grain weight. So, for example, I believe, you know, I could be wrong here, probably am, but uh, 150 grains is equivalent to a five weight, and I believe 170 grains is equivalent to a 6 weight. That's a 20 grain difference and it may seem like a lot, but basically that's the weight of one business card. So there's often confusion don't want to get off a slippery slope here that if you overline or underline a rod, you can impede its perform impede that rod's performance or 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 um not get the castability out of the line that you're hoping for, and that's not necessarily the case. Of course, if you obviously put a 10 weight on a 3 weight, that might have some negative impact on your on your equipment but that's not commonly do, done. But uh, again, grain weight has nothing to do with sink rate. Sink rate is a reflection of density and is measured in inches per second, which we're going to talk about that a little bit uh, more depth when we get into the further on in today's episode. So grain weight is uh, sometimes used though in conjunction with sink rate, particularly when you're using fast sinking lines, you know, outside of the uh, Stillwater world. I can think of striper lines, for example, are often measured, Uh, sometimes in grain weights because you can use um, these lines on different rods so you'll sometimes see manufacturers have a grain weight of 250 grains or 350 grains and um, it's just making sure even though you want to make sure that that line still sinks at a set rate five inches per second six inches per second it just allows you to make sure that you're going to match in those scenarios a grain weight line that's compatible with the fly rod you're going to use so you don't underpower or overpower that rod um as well without overloading it so that's primarily it that's in a sort of a reader's digest version if you will of grain weight versus sink rate again grain weight has nothing to do with sink rate an analogy i saw in some of my research for this episode was if you had a basketball that weighed 200 grains and a rock that weighed 200 grains and threw them in the pool the basketball would float and the rock would sink. Both the same grain weight, so nothing to do with that. The rock has more mass, so it sinks. So that's, again, helps maybe better illustrate how grain weight is separate than sink rate. So one of the things you'll see with sinking rinds in relation to density is density compensation. It's a, uh, a feature you'll find on sinking lines, and it started many years ago when sinking lines first came out A lot of times were double taper lines. The tungsten powder that the fly line coating is impregnated with to help sink the line, give it uh, mass, density, if you will, to sink, um, was not always evenly distributed along the line. And consequently, because the line was thicker in the middle or belly section of the line, that's where the tungsten powder was concentrated and the line sunk in a U-shaped or often referred to as a hockey stick profile. I played hockey. We never used any hockey sticks that looked like that. But um, anyway, what this did was the line sunk in a bit of a, a subtle curve, if you will. And the argument was there was a loss of bite detection when you're trying to feel a strike around a curve. So the line manufacturers came up with a process called density compensation, where essentially they adjusted the mass, the density of the line along its length. So the line sunk tip first giving you a more straight connection between yourself and your fly there was no sort of curve or arc in the line if you will offering better bite detection now density compensation is a feature you're going to find in your more expensive line your entry level lines are typically non-density compensated so this is something you want to look for on the box because in cast and retrieve lock style most of the times we are using density compensated lines there are some exceptions. We're going to talk about that in a second in scenarios that those compensations would prove to be a benefit for you.
1: Let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsor. Waters West Fly Fishing Outfitters is your go-to resource for spay and swung fly techniques for the OP and beyond. They're known for their deep selection of unique high quality fly time materials and they are the gateway to some of the great steelhead rivers in the country. I was able to get out on the water with Ed and it was an amazing day. We uh, hit the shop early, met him at the shop. We fired up the old vehicle and headed out on the river. Ed is the type of guy that you feel comfortable right from uh, minute one and it was a good day. We ended the trip uh, for buying into this unimproved boat ramp, pulling the boat out and, and we ended up with a great opportunity and landed a nice, very nice Cromer and had a few other touches. Fished one of the great rivers in the country. It was amazing. Not only do they cover steelhead, but all species in the area, and they have a passion for all fish that swim up or live around salt. They can outfit any angler from the beginner to the most hardcore fishing bum you can imagine. They have a great online store, fast shipping, and uh, you will be supporting conservation when you support Waters Last. Please check in with Ed and Kyle right now to say hi and let them know you heard uh, from them on this podcast. And you can do that right now, wetflyswing.com slash waterswest.
0: Understanding sink rates is important because as lines sink from as slow as like a hover that sinks at one inch per second, all the way down to your fastest sinking lines that are anywhere from seven or even eight or nine inches per second now, depending on the manufacturer. Hover to seven is probably common through most line manufacturers. Um, they all get to the bottom it's just a matter of time so uh, a hover line it sinks at one inch per second for example it's going to take you know two minutes to go 10 feet it's going to take a while whereas a line it sinks at seven inches per second it's going to take about 15 to 17 seconds to get down to 10 feet so they're all going to get there it's just a matter of time and of course when we're choosing sinking lines it's not a race to the bottom factors that govern um scenarios i'm going to which line i'm going to choose whether i'm anchored or fishing lock style from a drifting boat i personally don't like to troll i like to move the fly through my presentations to uh, induce a take just my personal preference but anyway so that's going to have an influence if you're drifting downwind so let me fish lock style again something we can get into in a future date and i can bring some great guests in there to help talk about it as well You're fishing downwind, wind at your back, casting downwind, and retrieving the flies back towards you. Um, Advocates of this method, you're covering a lot of water. You're always presenting your flies to fresh fish, whereas trolling, of course, you drive over the fish first, in theory, and then your flies follow, which could spook them, especially in shallow, clear conditions. But it's a great method to cover a vast expanse of water. You know, whereas anchoring, you do have the ability, because the boat's anchored, of just a matter of patience and letting that fly sink. So you could be fishing a fast sinking line or a slow sinking line or a medium moderate uh, sink rate line in 10 feet of water. They're all going to get to the bottom. It's just a matter of time and how much time you're prepared to let those lines sink. So again, the technique, the how you're fishing anchored or, uh, or lock style has an impact. The mood of the fish, the activity level, if the fish are willing to chase, you can move your flies faster through the water and uh, consequently you can use a faster sink rate line because you won't have the risk of that line if you're fishing slowly or your flies hanging up on the bottom because the sink rate is too powerful for the retrieve speed you're using your retrieve speed is closely linked to the activity level of the fish your retrieve speed often for me is reflective on the types of flies i'm tying to i've tied on and the insects or the food sources i'm trying to imitate so scuds chronomid larvae those kind of things don't move very fast Uh, Leeches are capable of moving uh, at a reasonable pace. And of course, baitfish can scoot and dart as well. Uh, Big dragonfly nymphs uh, can also scoot along as well. Nothing is an Olympic athlete down there. They don't have any rocket packs strapped to their back. So most times in lakes, people do tend to move their flies too fast, but that has an impact on them as well. And of course, the water depth, Um, how deep do you need to get down? Because most of our presentations in still waters are governed for the most part getting our flies within, say, one to three feet of the bottom where the fish feel safe to feed. And of course, that's where the majority of the food lives, in and amongst the weeds and other debris that um, cover the bottom. Anyway, just some ideas on um, sink rates and uh, just some factors in whether or not you'd use a hover, clear intermediate, a type 5, a type 6, a type 7. And when we refer to types of lines like this, type 5, type 6, type 7, it all indicates how fast that line sinks in inches per second so generally a type three sinks at three inches per second a type five at five inches per second a type seven at seven inches per second and so on it's always important for you to look either on the box or on the manufacturer's website to see the sync rates of the lines because sometimes um, most manufacturers in their high-end line eight weight type three sinks at the same three inches per second as a five weight type three Years ago, this wasn't always the case because there was more line diameter, more line, if you will, on an eight weight versus a five weight. A type three tended to sink faster uh, on an eight weight than it did on a five weight. Now, a lot of these manufacturers have adjusted the sink rates so they sink true regardless of line weight, which is important when you're trying to use methods commonly associated with sinking lines called, uh, such as the countdown, where you literally count in your head or using your watch and count your line down in seconds to target specific depths so when you hook a fish you know the count you use so you can duplicate that because we usually when one fish is found there's others in that region too so and again more in depth we'll we'll go down in a future episode we'll go into sinking lines uh in much more detail from a presentation perspective so let's work our way through the sinking lines from the slowest sinking lines, that hover through the fastest sinking lines, and then through a couple of other line types as well that fall into sinking line categories, your sweep or parabolic lines. So let's start with the hover. So a hover line is the slowest sinking line you can get. Typically sinks around one inch per second, depending on manufacturers. Some manufacturers don't call them hovers. Some um, use terms like slow glass, things like that. But the slowest sinking line is typically around one inch per second these lines are not in my experience typically density compensated so you do get a bit of that u-shaped or sweep presentation which we actually use to our advantage they are an excellent line for fishing in the shallows or just subsurface so you could be fishing you know a really calm clear day and fish are in the shallows you can perhaps you're fortunate enough to see them If you tried using a floating line and a long leader, you may not get the accuracy you need or you might accidentally crash that line on the surface and spook them. A hover line allows you to fish a shorter leader. And, you know, typically for my sinking line, single fly scenario, I'm fishing leaders from nine to maybe 15 feet long, depending on conditions and the number of flies I've got on there. More flies on your leader, generally the longer the leader you're going to use. That hover line will slice just underneath the surface, yet won't overpower the presentation i mean won't drag everything down to the bottom you'll have enough time to keep those flies up off the bottom and hopefully catch a few fish they're great for fishing um, just subsurface as well if uh, fish are feeding on emerging uh, nymphs or pupa and you want to keep your line and your presentation just underneath the surface where the fish are feeding because once you get below them you're underneath of them and you're not going to get any response from your flies you have the best flies in the world you're just not fishing them in the right place and also works great in windy conditions. And I, one of the techniques I often use uh, hover lines for is fishing when fish are feeding on chironomid pupa in deeper water. So let's say 15 feet or greater, which may say, okay, Phil, that seems wrong to use a line that sinks at one inch per second. In 15 feet of water, it's going to take me until lunch to get my flies down there. Well, they do take a while to sink. And this is a technique I use from an anchored position Where the wind is up, it's almost white caps going. You've got foam lines starting to form. It's just using midge tips or floating lines with indicators or long leaders isn't practical. Remember that chop on the surface is going to potentially negatively impact um, your fly presentation because that sort of wavy action that the the surface chop puts on your fly line transmits down to your fly. And probably more importantly, you're losing contact as that line pitches and rises, uh, rises and falls in the swells. And the chop, um, you lose connectivity um, with your fly and potentially miss takes. So the hover line allows you to get through that. And also dealing with windy conditions and long leaders, as I mentioned earlier, can be problematic from a casting perspective. So what I like to do with this situation is I may be fishing a total leader length of 9 to maybe 12 feet. Um, If I'm allowed, I've got a couple of chironomids on there, some beadhead chironomid pupa. I'm going to make a long cast. I'm going to allow this line to sink. So if you want to get down 15 feet at 1 inch per second it's going to take approximately two and a half, three minutes for that line to get down to 15 feet. So this is obviously a patience game. And then you're going to use that painstakingly slow hand twist retrieve or pinch strip retrieve, famous with chronomid presentations, and just bring that fly back, those flies back. And because you are using this line, it's as again, I mentioned earlier, it's not density compensated. You get a bit of a sweep or a U-shaped presentation to your flies So basically your flies are fishing early in the cast, higher up in the water. And as the line sinks and they get down through towards the end of the cast, you're getting your flies into the, you know, the maximum depth. And then of course they come back up to the surface when you're going to recast again. And where you get your takes can give you clues as to where the fish are. So early in the retrieves, that tells you the fish are higher up in the water column. And you may have to adjust your sink rate, your line presentation. You may go back to an indicator if you want to target that depth whatever but uh, these lines pulling through the water a hover line is a great presentation technique for chironomids in particular when fish are spread out so i like to do it you know the fish could be spread out because there's not many bugs hatching or the hatch has not really begun with any gusto yet or is tapering off and the bugs are now more spread out in the water column the fish have to spread out a little bit more and not get so focused to hunt and find food so it's a great option not just for the shallows a hover line is a very underrated line Um, that has a number of applications now the next line down in the sinking line section would be your clear intermediates these lines sink a little faster than the hover anywhere from one and a half to two inches per second depending on the manufacturer and the clear intermediate lines within um, their range years ago you used to get solid colored lines uh, that sank at two inches per second these have pretty well been replaced By the clear intermediates because the clear portion gives you an element of stealth the logic being i believe that fish can't see the line although i'm not necessarily convinced that a fish can see your fly moving through the water the clear space between it and the fly line which is the leader and then the line itself and do that mental math to figure out that uh, maybe they shouldn't eat that fly so perhaps a bit of marketing in there not going to say um but That's the way they come. That's the way we use them. So they, again, have replaced your solid color type 2 line, if you will, line it sank at two inches per second. This is a primary Stillwater line. This is one of the core lines, which I'll summarize at the end of today's episode, that you want to make sure you have represented within your kit bag. Like the Hover, it's ideal in windy conditions because it'll get below that surface chop, yet not sink fast enough that um, you're going to put your flies on the bottom and not catch fish. Like the Hoverline, these lines aren't density compensated because you need tungsten powder to do that. Tungsten powder is dark, and of course you wouldn't have a clear intermediate if you had a dark substance in it. Although having said that, many of the line manufacturers now offer a camo appearance to their clear intermediates. They're still transparent or translucent, but they have kind of a model look to them that allows them to blend in with um, just different light rays in the water and uh, bottom shadow. And I think that's where the clear intermediate comes in, particularly on um, shallow, clear conditions, clear water, where line shadow is an issue. So line shadow, I mean, your line is moving through the water, the sun is beaming down on top of it, and it creates a shadow along the bottom. And it can look like a two by four, if you will, depending on how deep the water you're fishing and how far the line is above the bottom. And that movement of that shadow your line creates definitely spooks fish. So that's one of the things to think about when um, you're using these lines and the benefits of them. Um, you can get some of them in low stretch configuration, depending on the manufacturer that does a- affect the clarity of the line a little bit because the low stretch cores tend to be darker. So these are your camo type lines that you'll see out there. Your luxes clear camos, those kind of lines. And like The hover line, because they're not density compensated, you're going to get that sweep action to your flies as well. These are very popular lines um, for people just starting out, still water fly fishing, their first sinking lines. Um, Very versatile line. You can use it if you like to paddle or troll in a float tube or a pontoon boat. They're ideal for that and allow you to cover, depending on how you use it and as far as anchored or unanchored, like I talked about earlier, um, you can cover a wide range of depth. So definitely a line you want to make sure is represented in your kit bag. So let's talk about your faster sinking line. So now we're talking about lines that sink faster than three inches per second. So your type threes, your type fives, your sixes, and your sevens. And in some manufacturers now, there's eights or even nines. So again, typically, as I mentioned earlier, the line type equals the approximate sink rate of the line. I always say approximate sink rate because there's lots of factors that influence. Or one primary factor in my mind that influences sink rate of line that's water density, and it changes. The cooler it is, the more dense the water is. This will have some impact on the sink rate of your line. I've I've often teased manufacturers, and you can sometimes see it on their graphics they use to illustrate their lines that these lines are, you know, best suited from one to five feet, five to ten feet, ten to twelve feet, etc., like that. And the way the graphic works is this line appears. If you're unfamiliar with it, that that line would stop at 12 feet or 15 feet and just stop there and then you retrieve through. And I think I mentioned this in the first episode of this uh, series that if they had a fly line that did that, I'd be all over it because that would be pretty darn cool that if you wanted to get to 15 feet, you would just choose the line that stopped at 15 feet and you kept your fly there all day long. We don't get to do that. Probably the only way we could do that is through a washing line technique to some degree, which we'll explain in greater detail in the future. But basically a washing line is a buoyant fly on the point that's used to suspend other flies off independent droppers and works in conjunction with the sink rate of the line you choose for the zone of water you're trying to target. You're moving these flies horizontally. Or of course, a floating line and a strike indicator because the indicator governs the depth of the fly's presentation by the distance between the fly and the indicator. So, but again, uh, sinking lines, you know, they'll all get to the bottom. And that's why I say approximate sink rate. So, did mean to add a little confusion there. Um, we tend to use um, the faster sink rate lines for getting into obviously much deeper water, uh, moving flies fast through the water, a very common line to use when fishing attractor techniques where we're using gaudy flies, fish that pace, not necessarily to. Uh, initiate a feeding response, but one more out of territoriality, aggression, or curiosity. And there's also a method we call dangling, where we fish fast sinking lines vertically below the rod tip. It is a technique we uh, first learned about and used fishing chironomids in deep water, emerging chironomid pupa or larva, by suspending a fly a foot off the bottom, literally letting it dangle below the rod tip and waiting for the fish to take the fly. And the takes with this method are aggressive. Once you have that first grab, that dangling take under your belt, you pretty well don't want to do anything else for a while because that take is so exciting. It's savage, it's aggressive, and it's a lot of fun. And you can also use it with other flies too. Again, originally started with Cronomy pupa and larva, but now I use it to fish balanced leeches, to fish minnows uh, in in the summer months when the lakes get too warm to, to fish for trout. We need to let them rest and get through those warm summer low oxygen periods I take my trout techniques and my trout rods and I go fish for walleye in my local lakes. And when they're, they're a little more temperature tolerant fish, I use the same uh, presentation techniques. The flies may change a little bit. And one of the techniques I love to do when the walleye are in deeper water, 20, 25, 30 feet, is dangling. Fishing vertically using balanced bait fish or leech patterns works very, very well. And I, again, I mentioned the washing line presentation. So good for using um, with those techniques as well. Now, another line that's come into the market recently um, and gaining popularity are sweep or parabolic lines. And when you think back earlier in this episode, I talked about density compensation and how line manufacturers driven by consumers were asking for a line that didn't kind of sweep or move through the water in an arc um, because of the the, uh, loss of strike detection. The sweep or parabolic lines seem to be the complete opposite of that request, but they are a line I have well represented in my kit bag and I use a lot. Um, these are lines, they're not um, density compensated, but they're also built um, a little differently than your hover or clear intermediate that I mentioned earlier that weren't density compensated. These are lines that have sections, if you will, of different sync rates along their length. This encourages an exaggerated U-shape retrieve path. And depending on the manufacturer, they can be in different sync rates. So the two I like that I use from Rio, the clean sweep lines, come in a fast and a slow formulation. And for example, the fast has an intermediate tip that's about seven feet long and then a, a, a body section that's about 28, 29 feet long of type six and then a rear running line that sinks at a type four rate four inches per second so you've got a line with a tip that sinks about an inch and a half per second two inches per second a mid section a belly section a body section that sinks at six inches per second and then the rear half of the line it sinks at four inches per second And again this isn't induced sorry designed to induce that sweep or parabolic u-shaped travel path through the water so you're thinking when would you want to use this well it's an excellent line when you're trying to you know, prospect or search water vertically from top to bottom. Fish could be 5 feet down, 10 feet down, 15 feet down, depending on the depth of water you're fishing. This line allows you to sweep your flies through those different depth zones to find where the fish are and where they're feeding. I love to use this line, the faster sinking formulas, when I'm fishing lock style over deeper water or I'm drifting. Again, the fish could be not on the shoals. They could be out over deeper water. You could be fishing, you know, you fish some bodies of water that are 80, 90 feet deep. You can't practically anchor in those scenarios. And the fish in those deeper waters, there's no real structure to hold them or food concentrations necessarily to hold them. So they meander and they cruise around. So the best way to attack them sometimes is using those lock style techniques and cover a lot of water and bump into as many fish as you can. And while you're doing that, You're covering water, you know, horizontally, if you will, through your drift, but the sweep line allows you to cover that water vertically as well by the differing sink rates sweeping through. Now, to get the best use out of these lines, the further you can cast, the better they're going to work because you're going to get all of those differing sink rates involved in your presentation. If you can't make a long cast, you may only get the front two sections um, into your presentation and don't get that sweep. Adding buoyant flies, such as a booby or a fab or a foam-based or a spun and clipped deer hair dragon nymph, for example, also helps exaggerate the U-shaped path. Because if you imagine that fly on a point in a multi-fly system, if you're allowed to do it, um, will hold um, your flies up a little bit and help uh, encourage that U-shaped path as well. I also like to use the slower sinking formulas, particularly when I'm using Boatman and Backswimmer patterns, which are a common food source in early spring and fall on my local lakes and these are an air breathing insect that comes up to the surface traps a bubble of air um, along its body and then swims back down to do its thing and constantly has to recharge that air bubble and so that gives these insect a u-shaped travel path if you will from the surface to the bottom back up to the surface back up to the bottom so a slower sinking a slower sweep or parabolic line in that scenario in shallower water just a slower sink rate is allowing you to imitate that natural travel path of those insects without sinking too fast and screwing up your presentation and catching weeds and other bottom debris. And also proponents of these sweep lines believe that you will get a better hang at the end of a presentation because there's a more vertical line path at the end to pull that fly up through different zones. And again, if you're not familiar with it, the hang is a critical part of any subsurface presentation. And even, you know, when I use uh, floating lines and long leaders, where the fish may be following your fly for a time and at the end of your retrieve when you go to cast again you raise that fly up through the water you may pull it through the zone they're feeding or most likely, i believe the fish are following and when that fly pulls away from them and changes direction and speed it triggers the kill switch in their head if you will and they try and take the fly and Uh, If you don't stop the fly at that point, you're going to see a vicious swirl. You might get a grab and then miss it, or um, you just see a flash of silver or, in the case of a brown tote, that beautiful mustard yellow coloration, and you've missed the fish. So the hang is at the end of every retrieve. You go into a slow rod raise, almost like a roll cast, gather the lines in, and pause or hang the fly or flies at the surface to see if there's any fish following to, and you know, they've... You've triggered them to come up and take it by moving the flies up through the water and then you pause or hang it and give them their reward so they can take it. A very exciting thing to do when you're still water fly fishing because you often get to see the take right in front of your eyes. And in my seminars and schools and presentations, if you incorporate the hang into your presentations, I bet you you'll add 20 to even almost 30% to your catch rate. It's that effective a method to do. So you want to make sure you take advantage of that. So those are sweep or parabolic lines. And I have two of them in my kit bag, uh, the fast sweep and the
1: slow sweep. Quick break for a word from our sponsor. With more than 40 years of experience in coffee, the Anglers Coffee Team roasts a full range of coffee with one goal in mind, delivering excellent coffee to every single angler. Responsibly sourced from farms using sustainable growing practices, you can rest easy knowing you are doing your part. Roasted and shipped within 48 hours to assure freshness. For me, it's all about that freshness and taste. When I crack open a bag of Anglers in the morning, I feel good because I know not only does it taste great, but I am supporting great movements along the way. With a blend for every taste, a dry dropper on the go tea bag option, and a roast sampler, you know Joe at Anglers is serving your needs. It's time to step up to better coffee and more impact for the fish species and causes we love. You can head over to wetflyswing.com anglers right now to grab a bag of greatness today. That's Anglers, A N G L E R S, to make a change today.
0: One of the things you'll see on many sinking lines today is a thing called a hang marker. It's a physical marker on the line. Years ago, we used to put them on ourselves using high vis tying thread on a bobbin. We would literally hold the tag end of the thread against the fly line and then spin the line, which would encourage the bobbin to spin and wrap around the uh, line and create a focused band of thread. You wanted to keep that bobbin on a short leash so you didn't remove a few of your teeth. And it took a bit of practice to get those lines to line up neatly. and then you would uh, finish the you do a whip finish essentially, like you would finish a rod guide on there and uh, finish the thread off, remove it, coat it with some super glue, maybe a little aqua seal or um, nonsense and uh, it would create a little bump visible bump on your line you could see the color and you could feel it as well didn't impede the castability of the line at all but it um we tended to put them 10 and 20 feet uh, different increments along the line and this was sort of your i call it my wake-up point when i'm doing a retrieve i would feel or see that marker and know that i was at the end of the retrieve and it was time to think about inducing the hang so um, now, uh, line manufacturers have put this on the lines for us. Um, some manufacturers, it's a focused little spot, like my thread wraps. Others, it's a um, change in the texture of the line or the color. But some clue that the end of your retrieve is near and it's time to initiate the hang. And also, um, some manufacturers put them, the, the manufacturer I, I use a lot, Rio, we use, we have them there at 20 feet, and I like them at 20 feet is one of my favorite places because First of all, from a casting perspective, that's the ideal pickup point. You've got the right amount of line outside of the rod tip to properly load the rod so it casts efficiently. You've got to have that enough line outside of the rod tip so you have enough mass to load or bend the rod so it'll cast properly for you. The hang marker at that point also gives you the option of initiating the hang at the rod tip, halfway down the rod or right back at your hand depending on how long your leader is clarity of the water so usually if i'm fishing shorter leaders clear situations i might initiate the hang at the tip simply to keep my flies a little further away from me and my uh, watercraft so the fish doesn't see it and spook but other times i might choose on a longer leader situation to bring that hang marker right back into my hands at the reel during my retrieve so you experiment with it and with the hang you fish fast rod raise a slow rod raise you can hang it for five seconds 10 seconds 20 seconds you're always playing around to see what the fish like um because they'll tell you and a lot of times when you look you look down and you bring the flies up and lo and behold there's a fish or two fish following And, and sometimes you pull it out i remember one time doing the rod raise raised it up and then saw nothing and then w- just right then and there initiated the cast and lo and behold a fish showed up and it was pretty aggravated that its lunch it was following was left and was zigzagging all around in front of me and I literally just flopped the flies right in the general vicinity of the trout as soon as those flies hit the water it turned on it like a rabid dog and snapped those flies up so pretty exciting to see and again if I hadn't have done that and done any kind of hang I never would have got that fish so Again, a great way to increase your catch rate and something you should look for on your sinking lines. But again, you can add them yourself. Another way to do it without the thread is you can buy, um, I'll make a point of putting this in the show notes, you can get Dacron-based bobber stoppers. So these are, imagine, backing on a little plastic tube that's almost like a um, nail knot, long tag ends on each side. You would slide your fly line up the tube When you get it uh, where you want it on your line, you would then gently massage that backing bobber stop off the plastic tube. It would now be sort of loosely around the fly line. You'd grab both tag ends to snug it up evenly and give it a hard tug and lock it in place. And you trim the tag ends, coat it or whatever. Um, You can also use them as line markers when we do the dangling, for example. One of the benefits of a hang marker is uh, um, if you're not fishing vertically too deep, And you don't want to go through the process of, after every fish, having to reset the depth of your flies. Once you've done your initial depth set, and uh, how we typically do this without getting too deep into another subject matter, is we clip a weight to our fly, lower it over the side, put our rod in the position we're going to fish it with our rod tip at a set distance off the water, typically three or four inches. So let it sit there. I start reeling that line up, and eventually that reeling in action is going to pull that weight so it's just kissing the bottom and you'll see your rod tip noticeably bend down i reach up in front of my fly reel about one foot pull that fly line back to my retrieve hand reel that little bit of slack in strip the line in unclip the weight and make the cast and now i know when that line sinks tight off the end of the rod tip with my rod tip three to four inches off the water it is going to be hanging about a foot off the bottom perfect spot for this presentation when I've got it set up like that, and I don't, I'm don't, i not fishing too great a depth, many times your hang marker will be within your rod guides. So all you need to do is pay attention to which guide your hang marker is adjacent to, and then you know after you, you know, have some success and catch a fish and you want to reset, you just make a cast out and set things up so your hang marker is again hanging at the guide it was prior to when that fish took the fly. So hopefully that makes sense. Now, throughout this uh, two-part series... Probably many of you are wondering, Phil, okay, how do you manage all of this? Because let's do a little bit of line summary here. In episode one, I got to seven lines. So now with my syncing lines, I've got a hover, I've got a clear intermediate. Now again, I mentioned that they come in one and a half and two inch per second sync rates. So I've got one of each of those. So that's three lines, a hover, two clear intermediates. I've got a type three. I've got a type five. I've got a type six. I've got a type seven. I've got a fast sweep and I got a slow sweep. So that's another eight lines I've added, taking us to a total of 15. And then one thing I haven't mentioned is there are other line types. And and, um, when you look on a website of a line manufacturer, you're going to see fly lines that are designed for other applications outside of still water fishing. But when you understand the line types, the scenarios they're used in, Density cores and coatings, those kind of things, you're going to see a line that goes well. Wow, that line's used for application A, but certainly would work very well for stillwater fly fishing. And I've got at least one line that I use for that. It's a um, integrated shooting head. It's got a thirty-foot, thirty-four-foot clear intermediate line. So all clear intermediates. I don't know if I mentioned it earlier. Are usually on a monofilament core. Um, so one of the issues with monofilament, regardless of manufacturer is memory. And the way to fix that is really simple before you, you cast, you want to strip your line that you're going to cast off and just give it a good stretch between your two hands. Take about two to three feet, you know, stretch the line out under tension and that tension will take all of that memory out and it'll cast wonderfully. If you just strip a monofilament monocore line right off the reel, particularly on a cold cooler day. It's going to hold that memory and it's not going to be fun to cast. So just a little line stretch takes that memory out for you. So remember to do that. So again, that is a line that was originally designed for fishing beaches in the Pacific Northwest for cutthroat. And I looked at that line going, wow, it casts a mile. It's got that clear intermediate head. That is a perfect application for stillwater fishing. So there's an example of a line type, not designed originally, for still water lines that you may want to consider. So there's other line types that you can bring into your kit bag as your needs and desires and your bank book allows you to do. So don't get stereotyped and thinking just using still water lines. That's the only kind of lines you can take. Um, There's many line types and designs out there. And if they fit for your still water needs, consider picking it up and putting it in the kit bag. You'll probably be very thankful you did. Now, one of the issues with all of these line types is, Phil, how many rods do you take on the water? How do you deal with all of this? I'm fortunate enough that I keep all of my lines on spare reels. Um, Spare spools are an option as well, and many reel manufacturers offer plastic or composite cassettes um, that are lightweight, and typically when you buy the reel, you'll get two or three with them. So you can already, one reel can handle three different line types right out of the box. But how do you transfer one? You know, how do you make a change on the water? And this is probably something best seen visually, but I'll try doing my best to describe it. So typically when I'm on the water, I'll have two or three rods rigged and ready to go. And this is all based on experience, time of the year, presentation methods I anticipate using or would like to use. That'll dictate which three rods. So for an example, early spring, I'm probably going to be fishing fishing floating line with an indicator, I might have a floating line with a long leader setup uh, on it, and I may have a clear intermediate, for example, or a sweep line setup. So I've got three rods set up. And the reason you do that is, you know, we are path of least resistance creatures. We don't like to change uh, fly lines out on the water. It's problematic. And, and of course, that limits us some days because you can have a scenario where you go out there with a the preconceived notion it's not working You think about making the change, you don't, you come in, your friend was on the water, they made the change and had a great day and you're kicking yourself for not changing the fly line because it was too much of a hassle. So I'm going to describe a method to help you change fly lines quickly and efficiently from a seated position. This works very well if you're sitting in a float tube or a pontoon boat and it comes from competition angling where you're only allowed... To have one rod strung at any one time and you're not allowed to stand up in the boat. And of course your other competitive boat partner is not going to appreciate you passing rods along the boat and trying to string them and all that stuff. So how do you do it? Well, one of the things you want to have in your kit bag is a good old wooden clothes peg. So what I'm going to do is when I decide to change the line, I'm going to reel that line into the reel and do my best to get my leader and line connection between my reel and the stripping guide, the first guide on your rod. Now, if you've got multiple flies, you may have to clip one off. Again, the challenge with changing fly lines is threading the rod. So once you've got the uh, leader junction, hopefully uh, within arm's reach, you're going to take that wooden clothes peg and gently pin or clip, uh, pinch the leader against the rod blank. That's why I use the wooden clothes peg. It's not going to damage the graphite blank or the glass blank or whatever type of rod you're using. You're going to pinch it there to hold the leader. You probably want to pull the flies into the boat with you so um, you don't accidentally hook them on something outside the boat or worse, catch a fish. And now it's only held on with a uh, closed peg because what you're going to do after pinching it against the rod bank with that clothes peg is use your nippers and cut the leader from the fly line. So you're going to literally cut the, if you're using a loop to loop connection, you're just going to cut that loop uh, using your nippers. You're going to remove any residue. You're going to reel that line into uh, the reel. You're going to change the spool or you're going to remove the reel from the line, being slow and deliberate so you don't uh, have an expensive lesson. Put that reel back in the kit bag. Take your other reel out. Attach it to the rod or put the new reel spool onto the reel. Pull off the end of the line. Make sure you've got no leader on the uh, the replacement line you're using. Then you're going to take the end of the leader that's still being held in place by the clothes peg, and you're just going to tie an improved clinch knot to the tapered loop sorry, the welded loop. Crim that little stubby end, remove the clothes peg, make a couple of false casts. That's going to feed the line up through the guides, and you have effectively threaded the rod. Well, you have not effectively, you have threaded the rod and changed your fly line. Now, you may not end up using the same leader that you used on the previous line, for example. I could be changing from a floating line with a 20 or 25 foot leader. I'm putting on a Type 5 sinking line. Obviously, I probably don't want to use a 20 foot leader in that instance. But this method has threaded the rod. I would then, once that lure rod is threaded, bring that leader into the boat or into onto my uh, pontoon boat or float tube. Remove it, put a new leader on, and off you go. But again, the rod is threaded. So that's how I can take all these different lines, close to uh, around 20, in my kit bag. And have those three rods strung, but still have the flexibility to change lines when I'm on the water without, you know, uh, a lot of stress, fuss, effort, and frustration. That concludes our two-part foray into hopefully making sense of still water fly lines. We've talked about line types. We've talked about profiles. We've talked about why you need so many lines. We walk through the different lines from floating all the way to the fastest sinking. We've included clean sweeps. I've given you a little bit of uh, insight onto some of the presentation techniques I use for different lines and why I have those lines with me. Sometimes I have the lines for those presentation techniques. I have certainly favorite lines I like to fish. I have scenarios that are put in front of me that dictate I have to use those lines. It gives me the versatility to handle as much of the different presentation challenges. We're given on lakes by choosing the lines, so really important to do that. So again, I've got my summary of my lines. I've got a floating line uh, for dries and emergers. I've got a floating line for long leaders. Again, that's an aggressive front taper. I've got a floating line for indicators, same kind of line. I've got midge tips or clear intermediate or um, emerger tips. I've got them in three-foot lengths, six-foot lengths, and two different sink densities on the tips, so that adds up to seven. I've got a hover line. I've got two clear intermediates. That's 10, the type 3, the type 5, the type 7, the two sweep lines, and that one line I mentioned, uh, the uh, non-stillwater line It certainly works well in still waters. I believe that's close to 20. I haven't been counting them on my fingers here because I don't have 20 fingers on my hand, so... Uh, but you can see how it piles up. So some of you are going, okay, great. That's not my reality. I'm not going to be able to justify that or or it's going to take me time to accumulate those lines. What ones do I need? So I mentioned at the beginning of both of these presentations, I was going to give you the critical path. And the critical path, if I had just three lines to use on lakes, if you had to choose, I would definitely have a floating line that is best suited for fishing indicators, and long leaders. So that is a floating line with an aggressive front taper, a short front taper that keeps the mass of the line near the leader. That mass helps turn over mass in the form of leader length and multiple flies if if you're allowed to fish multiple flies, or to fish indicators where we have an indicator, we have a barrel swivel, we have a bead headed fly, we have level thin level leader to ensure proper vertical sink on our presentation. That's the kind of floating line I would have. You definitely probably don't want to have a floating line suited for dries. It emerges in that case. The line profile and construction and makeup just will really struggle trying to cast those rigs. Next one you'd want to have is your clear intermediate that sinks at about one and a half to two inches per second. This is a line that's going to allow you to fish shorter leader lengths. It's going to allow you to fish in windy conditions because that line will get under the surface chop. It's got a slow sink rate. So you um, allows you to use slow pace retrieve, which is what the majority of your presentations will be focused around because the food trout feed upon in lakes do not scoot around at warp speed. So that allows you to stay in control of your presentation. You can cast and retrieve with this. You can paddle around and mooch with it if you want, kind of strip and troll, kind of a blend in a float tube or a pontoon boat. You control with it outright, a very, very versatile line. And then a fast-sinking line of some sort, i probably recommend a type 5 sink rate, a line that sinks at 5 inches per second. This will allow you to fish flies a little faster, a little deeper as well. Now, if your lakes are are shallower, a type 3 maybe. So, for example, an angler that fishes Henry's Lake in Idaho, type 5 might be too much uh, fly line for that scenario because that lake is typically, typically it is, uh, very shallow for the most part. So a type 3 line is a better choice due to its slower sink rate in relationship to the, water you're going to be working and the speed of your flies you're going to be used but most other lakes outside of that example probably a type 5 would be a good mid-range to do that that would get you allow you to fish flies at faster pace fish deeper water fish vertically all those kind of different scenarios a very adaptable line and of course then you start filling in the blank so if you think of fly lines a bit like golf clubs i may have used this analogy in uh, episode number one you could probably, and I'm a lousy golfer, more probably a hack is a better word of my golfing ability. You can probably play a lot of good golf with a a wood, a favorite iron, a sand wedge, and a putter. And these three lines are the floating line for indicators and long leaders. Your clear intermediate and that type five or type three full sinking line are sort of your core clubs, if you will, in lakes. But as you uh, expand. Your knowledge and understanding of fly lines, your different applications you want to do, different techniques as your budget allows, or your significant other who approves those kind of things perhaps uh, allows, then you can start filling in the blanks because you're going to be in scenarios where those three core lines will work, but perhaps a type seven line might work better, or a sweep line might be a better choice, or a hover line might be a better option for you to do that. So you you'll fill in the blanks, and of course with these lines. I'm a big fan of low stretch line. So if you can get a low stretch line uh, in those three types, um, you're well off on the way off to the races and, and you'll have a good core of lines. that will get you through most fly line scenarios. So hopefully you enjoyed these uh, episodes. Again, if you haven't picked up uh, or listened to episode one, I encourage you to do so. Um, this is a favorite topic of mine to discuss at uh, clubs and shows. Hopefully you enjoyed today's episode. Thanks for taking the time to spend with me and learn a little bit more about uh, Stillwater Lines and why you need so many and what options you have at your disposal. If you've got any questions, please reach out to me. I'm only too happy to answer them. Um, You can reach out directly via email, flycraft at shaw.ca. You can respond back to the good folks at wet fly swing who uh, graciously host my podcast for me and they'll get your messages along to me, but whatever way you want, get your fly line questions or other still water questions to me. I'm only too happy to answer them for you. So thanks again for listening and we'll see you in a future episode.
1: That was Phil Roy on the Littoral Zone, part of the wet fly swing podcast and swing outdoors. Wanted to give Phil a big thank you for another great episode. I hope this special series gives us a chance to let Phil up the level for all of us through this podcast. You can send any feedback you have to me, Dave at wetflyswing.com, or check in with Phil anytime. I hope you've been enjoying this podcast series, and I can't wait till we get the next episode of The Littoral Zone out there. One big reminder we are going to be doing some Stillwater schools around the country. If you're interested, anytime you can check in slash. Stillwater School. And uh, you can find out where we're heading next. All right. Thanks for stopping in today. See you on the next episode of The Littoral Zone.